Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London. And I'm Chad Bound, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This week, we're going to talk about globalization superstars. That's big companies and billionaires. We'll be joined by Dr. Caroline Freund, one of the top trade research economists in the world. Her CV is awesome. She's worked at the IMF, the Federal Reserve, and at the World Bank. She was the chief economist for the Middle East and North Africa region. And now I'm lucky enough to have her as my colleague here at the Peterson Institute. We're going to ask Caroline to talk about her book, Rich People, Poor Countries, The Rise of Emerging Market Tycoons and Their Mega Firms. We'll talk about how trade and globalization have contributed to the rise of superstar firms and whether we should be worried about it. The answer is, as always, complicated. Carolyn, welcome to Trade Talks. Pleasure to be here, thanks. So let's start with some background. Why should we care about the super rich, the superstar companies, and why should we care about them today? Well, when most people think about billionaires and really large firms, they worry about why so few should have such a big share of the pie, and it seems very unfair. But not all inequalities are the same, and some of the big firms are developed by real, true superstars. So think about Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Tesla. These companies didn't come out of nowhere. They, they had founders, people behind them who had great ideas and pushed and pushed and followed through. People like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Elon Musk. And of course, the original innovator was Thomas Edison, who created GE, the only one of the original Dow Jones that's still on the list more than 100 years later. So, of course, not all super rich are creators like this, and there are the ones who are stealing from the rest of us. But some of them, it turns out, do things that are good and that we want to actually promote. How are the world superstars changing? They're increasingly from emerging markets. In the past, it was basically an advanced country phenomenon with all the leading firms coming from the advanced countries and all most of the billionaires coming from the advanced countries. But now more than 40% of the world's billionaires are from emerging markets and a significant share of the Fortune 500. From Brazil, Russia, India, and China, the share of Fortune 500 and of billionaires has gone from about 5% 15 years ago to more than 20% now. But this is trade talks. So tell us how all of this relates to international trade. Well, let me take a step back and just say one thing, which is I think the reason it's interesting to look at the billionaires and the superstar firms is because how people get rich and what type of companies you have in an economy tells you a lot about what activities are most well rewarded, about what you have the incentives for people to do. And this is actually where trade comes in. Because in countries that are open to trade, what's the incentive on how to get rich, especially if you're from a small country? Well, it's to sell things to people in bigger countries. Imagine IKEA if it could only sell to Sweden, or Zara if it could only sell in Spain. They wouldn't be the big, huge brands that they are, and their founders wouldn't be worth billions of dollars. 
How has trade contributed to the growth of these superstars then? Let's take an example. So I just mentioned Zara, which was founded by a guy called Amancio Ortega, who's now the richest man in Europe worth $74 billion. When Zara started, it's a clothing company. Well, in order to be able to sell clothing in other markets, you need to have pretty open markets. So openness is important. And tariffs came down over this period. And importantly, the multi-fiber agreement was also phased out, which meant that quotas went away. So you could sell a lot of clothes produced anywhere in different markets. In addition to trade policy, the other main change that happened was in communications. And Zara really leveraged all of this to watch what the main big fashion houses were doing, copy their styles, produce them extremely quickly, send the designs to Morocco and other places where they produce, make these clothes and ship them out to stores around the world. And the information technology really matters. At your Zara store, they monitor through computers what sizes you're selling. And they always know who comes there and then can replenish with the sizes that are needed. So it was about trade policy. It was about communications across countries. And this is how a company like Zara could expand around the world. So you said a couple of things there that I found really interesting. One was the increased openness that took place through the elimination of the multi-fiber agreement or the MFA, another acronym that we have in trade policy, cutting tariffs, opening up quotas to international trade in textiles and apparel, affecting Zara over this time period, information technology that allowed for supply chains to develop so that these companies in Spain could get access to the produced textiles and apparel in Morocco. But how does openness play a role in this whole story? So not just openness to trade, but actually openness to foreign investment. Well, openness is super important. So when we look at how people get rich, the people who get rich through trade and through foreign investment tend to be these kind of creators because if you're able to compete in foreign markets, you must be producing something that's good. And that's one way. It's just the incentives. If your incentive is to get into other markets, you have to be trying to be efficient. You have to be more efficient than producers elsewhere. So these are the really big, good firms. So that's that's one way in, in which trade is very good. It also helps you get the inputs you need to produce. So if you're not open to other markets, you can't get the kinds of products, parts, and components you need to put into production. And investment plays a very similar role especially in industries that are otherwise non-tradable. So think of retail stores or something like that, where you really need a market presence in order to grow. It helps develop big firms. It's also important because it keeps the environment competitive. So in countries where you're protected from foreign investment, again, you're shifting people's incentive. Oh, now I can get rich by having my own telecom company or my own retail firm because foreigners can't come in and I can charge really high prices. So foreign investment also helps keep the economy more competitive. And then finally, I would add that even if you don't have your own company or 
your own superstar that develops, allowing a foreign superstar into your market creates jobs and creates some upstream industry, which sometimes turns into really big business. The fact that Apple is in China has created lots of big companies in support of producing the iPhone. Another example I really like is Dilip Shangvi, who started a company with about $800 that he borrowed from his dad. And he went into a really niche market, which was producing lithium for bipolar disorder. And this was interesting because it's a chronic disease, so he had constant market. It added value to the country of serving people who had been really underserved. And over time, this company grew, and now it invests around the world and employs tens of thousands of, of people. That's an example where openness led to a superstar. What about where a country being closed led to the bad kind of super rich person. What's interesting is often in closed countries, when people get rich, they get rich, but they don't get the kind of super rich that brings them onto the Forbes list, especially in a small country, because they're confined to a small market. So a country I worked in a lot was Tunisia, which in some sectors was very closed because the former leader, Ben Ali, restricted these sectors to his cronies, basically, and protected them. One example is the French chain casino came into Tunisia, was given one of the son-in-laws as, as a partner, and developed, he got rich. It was good for the Tunisians because now they had more access to goods. but. It's different than if the environment had been such to really incentivize someone to start their own company and grow. So think about Tunisia. 1985, it was about the same size as Chile, similar economies. Chile now has 12 billionaires. Tunisia has zero. And as Marwan Marbrook, the one I was just talking about, was a founder of this French chain casino, in Chile, we have a founder of a hypermarket that developed in Latin America and Chile and expanded throughout the region and now has more than 600 stores. And the real difference was the business environment in Chile encouraged people to go after wealth through creating enterprise and through trading. In Tunisia, wealth could be created by being related to the government and then expanded, not as much as in an open environment, but expanded by protection, by protection from competition. And, and that's going to be damaging for the country, although oddly, it actually doesn't create the kind of super rich that you get in a more open economy. So more generally, though, in the current environment where folks are really suspicious about big business. Shouldn't we really be worried about trade creating these massive firms? I'm less worried about the areas where trade is creating them. There's been a lot of research showing that concentration is rising in the U.S., and one might be concerned about that. But I think it's important to keep in mind that many of these large firms are competing with large firms from foreign countries. So what we really would worry about is 
global competition. And what we know from trade is that as competition gets more intense, the most efficient firm can grow. And that's, that's part of where we get productivity growth from, is resources moving to the most productive firms. So actually, increasing concentration can be a sign of innovation, of productivity growth, of all these things. Now, that's not to say it always is. Concentration can also be the bad kind, but then it would have to be the case that somehow there isn't enough competition, which we do see in some industries. So I know you've done all of this research on big firms, superstar firms, I think you call them, in these emerging markets especially. Why are they superstars? What are they contributing to economic development? When we look at exports, what's interesting is that the top firms are responsible for such an extraordinary share. The top five firms, I'm talking about five firms in a country, are typically responsible for a third of exports. The top individual firm on average is 15% in a developing country. That's just huge. So what that means is getting one new brilliant big firm can grow your exports by 15% if, if you can attract it. And so when countries, when I was at the World Bank and they everyone wants to increase and diversify their exports, ultimately being able to do that depends much more on allowing the best firms to grow than on hoping all firms in an economy are going to grow equally. And if the most efficient firm is growing, that's generating productivity growth because it's attracting resources away from less productive firms to the most productive firm. Overall, you're presenting a pretty rosy picture of these big firms boosting productivity. Isn't there anything to worry about anywhere with these big firms? What about China and its state-owned enterprises? State-owned enterprises weren't a focus of the work I did on superstar firms and superstar people because they tend not to be superstars. In fact, state-owned enterprises are very large, but on average much less productive than similar firms in the same industry. So somehow this less productive firm is attracting more resources, so that's bad for productivity. And they aren't started by one of these phenomenal innovators, so there, there also isn't the kind of extreme wealth, or at least extreme wealth that is registered associated with them. So they're a different breed. I've looked at them, and what I found is that there are some concerns with regards to state-owned enterprises. As these emerging market firms have grown, Global competition actually has become stronger. Although in the U.S. we might worry about rising concentration, the good thing globally is that concentration is actually falling because emerging market firms are increasingly displacing the incumbent large advanced country firms, so we're having this kind of global creative destruction, which is good. But in industries where state-owned enterprises dominate, actually global concentration is rising. In most industries, in three quarters of industries, global concentration is falling. 
competition is getting stronger and stronger, but in industries where state-owned enterprises dominate, we do see global concentration rising. And this is particularly of a concern because these aren't even productive firms. From an efficiency perspective, resources are moving into less productive firms in an industry, and that's a problem. Do you have specific examples of where these state-owned enterprises have tended to crop up and that might be particularly worrisome in some industries in mind? So we've seen it in steel. One area that's really shocking is actually in construction. So the four largest firms are Chinese construction firms. And this is an issue because it means that when there's a big global project around the world and firms from different countries are competing for it, they're competing with firms that are owned by the state, with state backing and state funds behind them. And that can be a problem for global competition. So normally these massive firms mean more efficiency and greater competition. But in the case of these Chinese state-owned enterprises, they seem to be having the opposite effect. Okay, so we've been talking about how trade policy and trade have been allowing these massive firms to grow even bigger. Thinking about trade policymakers today, is there anything they can do to rein in these massive inefficient firms? Well, ideally, Chinese policymakers themselves, and of course, policymakers in other countries with large state-owned firms, China's not the only one, would reform because it's really not in their interest to have them because as productivity rises when resources move to more productive firms. So giving resources to inefficient firms is not good for the country. Ideally, it would happen through domestic policy reform. But in the absence of that, since countries may have other reasons that they choose for political reasons, say, or employment reasons to maintain state-owned enterprises, there could be restrictions such as were in TPP and are being proposed in NAFTA. And this is really a new direction for trade agreements because while if you want to do that for your own economy, it's fine. But once these companies with the backing of the state start competing in global markets, it becomes bad for private business and it starts to lead to the kind of pushback against globalization as we've seen recently. So in conclusion, big firms can be good, they can be bad, and trade deals are going to solve everything. I think that is all for Trade Talks. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listeners, we will tweet out links to all the research mentioned. And if you wanted to thank us, then you could leave us a nice review on iTunes or tell your friends on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, maybe just a post-it note left in a public library. And if you have specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then do get in touch. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Mound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks. Because if Twitter can double the length of tweets, then we can double the normal number of underscores. Actually, hold on. For any listeners who made it this far, I want to tell a tiny story. And this is true, absolutely true. So my youngest daughter, and I won't reveal her age to protect the innocent, she introduced me to a friend one day last week by saying, this is my dad. He's one of the co-stars of Trade Talks. Pretty cool, huh? She will realize soon enough that the 
this is many things, but cool is not not one of them.